This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Deborah Notman. I'm a vice president of uh, the Rand Corporation and a director of Rand's Infrastructure Safety and Environment Division, one of Rand's uh, large research groups. I would like to welcome you uh, to this event, to this afternoon's discussion, which is centered on the question of what policy features constitute an effective approach to limiting greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. Um, as I mentioned, we've, uh, we are recording this uh, discussion today. Uh, a video will be available online at www.rand.org, uh, or you can listen to the discussion by uh, subscribing to Rand's Congressional Briefing Series podcast on iTunes. Um, for those of you unfamiliar with the Rand Corporation, uh, we are a nonprofit. Uh, we are a nonpartisan organization, and our mission is to help improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. We intend today's panel discussion to draw out some key issues and areas in need of further analysis as Congress begins to draft and shape uh, uh, climate legislation. RAND has an initiative on energy and climate change now underway, and our focus and where we think RAND adds value is in our ability to tackle big the big and complex questions about economics, uh, technology, and policy transitions. How do we get from the here and now of 2009 to a low-carbon-emitting economy, and at what cost and by what means? So I'm now going to turn the program over to Dr. Michael Toman, former director of RAND's Environment, Energy, and Economic Development Program, and now an adjunct member of RAND's staff. Mike will say a few words to frame this afternoon's discussion and then introduce our panelists. Thank you, Deborah, and thank you all for coming. Um, as you know, we have a, a relatively tight schedule here, so I'm going to try to hold my comments to a bare minimum so that we can. Uh, leave as much time as possible for remarks by the three very distinguished members of our panel and also time for question and answer and discussion. Uh, I think the topic today hardly needs introduction, but I do want to make one point of uh, clarification. Um, we will be talking today about cap-and-trade, but not entirely about cap-and-trade. It is one of a number of uh, measures that can be used and that are, in fact, under active discussion for limiting, in a mandatory way, U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. Cap-and-trade has tended to be the option that has gotten the most attention, but it's certainly not the only option in play. Um, so what I will do now is very briefly introduce the three panelists. There are detailed bios in your folders. I've asked each of them to make very short introductory comments, maximum five minutes, maybe less if possible, to highlight essentially the, the two top points that are of concern to them, either the things that they think really have to be done or under no circumstances should be done. That's up to them to decide how they want to frame it. I'll ask a few questions of the panelists, uh, try to motivate some uh, discussion amongst them and me, and then we'll open the floor up for, for Q&A with you all. So uh, in the order that they will make their introductory comments, which is alphabetical, David Hawkins is the Director of Climate Programs at the Natural Resources Defense Council, the far end here to my right. 
next to me and, and him is uh, William Kovacs, who is the Vice President for Environment, Technology, and Regulatory Affairs with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And to my left, Peter Molinaro, the Vice President for Federal State Government Affairs with Dow. So uh, let's go ahead and get right into it. David, if you want to lead us off with a couple of remarks, that would be very helpful. Stay seated here. Yes, absolutely. Okay, uh, I guess you can hear me. So I'm David Hawkins with the Natural Resources Defense Council. Uh, NRDC is an NGO. We are a large U.S.-based membership organization of now about a million members and activists. But uh, significantly for today's uh, discussion, we are a part of a collection of uh, major U.S. businesses and non-governmental organizations called U.S. Climate Action Partnership. It is a group of uh, 25 uh, major U.S. corporations and five uh, large NGOs. And in January, uh, U.S. CAP issued uh, a document which is out on the table, the uh, uh, Blueprint for Legislative Action. This is a detailed proposal for national climate legislation. In a nutshell, I, I would say that it consists of cap-and-trade plus, uh, cap-and-trade uh, program covering uh, the major uh, sectors of the economy, plus complementary policies that address some of the key sectors, such as electric power production, vehicles, uh, fuels for transportation, and uh, buildings and appliances. The core message that I'd like to say that I think U.S. CAP stands for is a conviction on the part of both NGOs and business that it's urgent to move to limit greenhouse gas emissions without further delay, that it can be done at reasonable costs to the economy, and that waiting will increase the cost to the economy for uh, reacting to climate change, as well as commit ourselves to a great deal more climate disruption. If we act now, we can avoid the worst, and we can do it at reasonable costs. The longer we wait, the more expensive and disruptive it will be. I'm done. Well, David, since you've gotten five minutes and you only took two, do I get your other three? Or? They're for sale. <laughs> Not buying today. Um, I'm Bill Kovacs with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Um, we're the largest business advocacy organization in the world. We have about 3.5 million members uh, in our federation, approximately 1,000 trade associations and 3,000 state and local chambers and approximately 106 American chambers abroad. So when we address uh, an issue as complex as climate change, we have a, a number of parties uh, in which we have to uh, consult with. Now, having said that, uh, we don't, we're not necessarily locked into any particular way of getting to a, a low-carbon society. What we are locked into is if we're going to go that way and that way is going to be expensive, that it actually has to do something. And we have to be able to seriously reduce the, the, the CO2 uh, in the atmosphere. And that's been probably our main concern with the proposals we've seen to date. Uh, our concern is with a purely domestic response, and we believe it happens needs to be an international response, with a purely domestic response, even if you eliminate it, the entire economic activity of the United States, CO2 emissions because of the developing world would still continue to rise. They may not rise as much, but they'll still continue to rise uh, through the next century. 
the other problem that we have with the purely domestic response is the leakage. We make our energy and our manufacturing more expensive, and we make, that makes it less competitive. And that then forces us as a nation to begin looking at how we put on trade sanctions or to put some kind of an imposition or tariff uh, on goods coming into this country, whether it be directly on the goods or whether it be some form uh, of a credit that the, that the manufacturers have to buy. And, in, and, and we, we're troubled by the fact that when you have to start tinkering with world trade, you're looking into uh, many ways of, of unintended consequences, and we're very concerned about that. And, and the, the proposals to date have not really addressed those two issues. Uh, the second issue that I think is, is the most it's really actually as important to us as, as, as the, the, the trade aspect, and that is when you put a cap on energy, you, you're going to be taking fossil fuels out of the economy. There's nothing in any of the legislation that actually puts new technology or new energy resources back in in a guaranteed way. So if, you, if you're going to reduce fossil fuels over a 20-year time period, you have to find a way uh, to put it back. And just to say, well, technology will be developed. It may or may not be developed. And if it's not developed, energy becomes more expensive and we become uh, less competitive. And let me just give you probably the, the, the best example. We talk about, well, we're going to have green jobs and we're going to have a green future and we're going to have green technology. Uh, but, the, but to... But to really multiply the, the, the renewables that are out there by 100 percent, 200 percent, 300 percent is not going to get you to the kind of energy supply that you need uh, going forward. The world is going to need an enormous amount more energy over the next century, and you're not going to necessarily get there with just renewables. And to, to prove this point, what we did is we've started – a uh, what we call a project no project it's an interactive website and it's very clear we ask ourselves well we know the environmental community is against coal we know the environmental community is against nuclear we know the environmental community uh, is, is is against oil but what is it that they're for so we look begin looking at all the renewable projects that have been stopped by the NIMBYs uh, across the United States in just the last two years there have been 65 renewable projects stopped and 13 grid projects stopped so that tells us that we've got a very rocky road ahead uh, in summary that what we would recommend is that if you're serious about this then you have to find some way in which to do permit streamlining to get the projects that are renewables into the environment so that we we have the energy. And, and second, you're going to have to be very, very serious uh, about preempting any aspects of the Clean Air Act that might, uh, uh, that might also limit our ability to grow energy in the future. Anyway, with that, I'll take questions later. Okay, thank you, Hi, I'm Peter Molinero with the Dow Chemical Company, and uh, we have the, um, the unusual uh, circumstance of being both a member of the U uh, U.S. Climate Action Partnership and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which uh, um, hopefully will elicit a few questions. But um, I, I would particularly, for purposes of this conversation, associate myself with the uh, positions and uh, blueprint of the U.S. Climate Action Partnership. Um, from a standpoint of uh, boiling down what we've just heard to the impact on my company, the Dow Chemical Company, um, it's important to know that we're one of the largest industrial users of energy in the world. And uh, every day we use the oil equivalent of about 850,000 barrels a day, principally for um, raw material to make our products, but also as a fuel. And as a consequence, we care very deeply about how uh, 
uh, we must balance this um, uh, environmental, the environmental effectiveness goal of climate policy with the economic sustainability uh, goal so that we can deliver and assure that there is a sustainable energy supply going forward, even in a carbon-constrained world. Also, just a couple of the, of the criteria that we will use to uh, evaluate uh, climate change legislation as we go forward, uh, in addition to uh, its, uh, it, how closely it, it, it tracks the, uh, the blueprint, is <clears throat> does it adequately address fossil energy used as a feedstock material? That is, those uh, hydrocarbons, for example, that uh, do not necess- are not necessarily combusted and don't necessarily uh, result in the emission of CO2. How are those treated uh, in the, uh, in the uh, allocation system and the rest of the cap-and-trade program? The second is how would the bill affect the price of natural gas? Natural gas, particularly in the United States, is our principal fuel and feedstock. And uh, it, is, um, it has been wildly um, volatile in price. Uh, and uh, we face enormous um, competition uh, from countries in the Middle East, for example, that have natural gas uh, that is very cheap and could land products here in the United States at a cost uh, landed lower than the cost of natural gas at, say, the Henry Hub, uh, which is the principal, one of the principal price-setting mechanisms for, for natural gas, which would illustrate you know, the, uh, the, uh, the competitive disadvantage that would be placed upon um, our, our industry and other manufacturers, uh, particularly if the climate change program were to drive, uh, for example, coal out of the power generation sector uh, and replace it with uh, an over, uh, over-reliance on natural gas. The third um, criterion, uh, of, and there are several others, but I'll stop at three, is the, uh, the effect on the competitive position of U.S. manufacturers. I did you know, just ge- gently highlight the competitive position that we face our, uh, ourselves, uh, and that addresses Bill's uh, point about leakage. To the extent that our hydrocarbon prices are cheaper, uh, our hydrocarbon prices are cheaper in the Middle East, uh, there will be more investment there. And that is already happening uh, as a result of the high energy prices we experienced earlier in the year. So there is already an example of how leakage can occur. And we have to design a climate change uh, policy that will address the needs of energy intensive manufacturers. Um, and uh, that's you know, part of the details that we'll get into, I'm sure, in the q and I'll stop there. All right. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Bill. And, and thank you, David. Um, what I'll do now is um, raise a few questions and ask um, the person to whom I direct the question to offer an answer. And then if any other panelist wants to chime in with a very brief follow-on comment, well and good. And uh, we'll then move from there to your questions and, and, and their answers. Let me um, proceed in the same order as the um, original uh, interventions here. And David, let me ask you first a question about the uh, approach that U.S. CAP has articulated and how you presented it. You mentioned that this is cap and trade plus. Uh, why do we need policies beyond cap and trade? This is an incentive policy. Why do we need other, other elements in this? Well, in theory, Congress could enact a CAP program which would have a, uh, a, a clearing price for, for greenhouse gases in the market that would be enough to prevent um, 
uh, wrong-headed investments and to create incentives for the kind of investments that we need uh, to make long-term progress. But in reality, I think that concerns about the overall cost of the program and even more so concerns about the impact on particular regions and sectors is going to result in a bill that's going to have a fairly lengthy transition period where uh, the market clearing costs or the costs that are seen by the various actors in the economy are lower than what is necessary to stimulate uh, the the best mix of long-term investments. And a good example of this is coal-fired power plants. Uh, a, a new coal-fired power plant is going to operate for 60 or 80 years. And um, the options that are available for uh, new coal-fired power plants today are ones that are, are somewhat expensive. Um, and you can go and get a commercial uh, contract for a carbon capture and storage uh, system, uh, and you can find examples of where CO2 uh, geologic injection is being practiced, for example, in enhanced oil recovery. But the clearing price for carbon in the early years is probably not going to be large enough to induce those kinds of investments, especially for the very earliest of those projects where there is some uh, technological conservatism, both by the and both by the power plant developers and also by Wall Street that's being asked to uh, develop it. So we need policies to overcome those uh, initial obstacles so that we don't make the wrong decisions while the carbon price uh, in the market is still very low. And we recommend those kinds of policies in the blueprint. Uh, specifically, we recommend performance standards for new coal-fired power investments, and we recommend a generous uh, subsidy for the earliest uh, of these projects so that you overcome the uh, uh, the uh, temptation to just uh, burn more natural gas uh, rather than uh, investing in um, uh, the resource that we have a lot of in the United States, but doing it without emitting carbon to the atmosphere. Uh, David, let me stay with you on a second question that's uh, related, at least uh, indirectly, to some of Bill's comments. Uh, Bill referred to the challenge of bringing alternatives to conventional fossil energy, and you've touched in your comment now on uh, carbon capture and storage, which is certainly an important part of the puzzle. One that certainly gets discussion, but not always favorable discussion, is nuclear power. And I'm wondering how you, speaking for yourself or uh, as a representative of the environmental community, sees the possibility of nuclear fitting into a low-carbon future. Well, first I'll start with the U.S. CAP blueprint. Uh, it, uh, the blueprint mentions nuclear power as an alternative uh, technology that uh, uh, should be in the mix. Uh, NRDC's position with respect to nuclear is that we don't oppose uh, new nuclear power plants. We do oppose diverting scarce resources to subsidies for new nuclear power plants. We think that 50 years of government subsidies ought to be enough and uh, that new nuclear power plants should, if they go forward, be uh, supported by private sector investments. Uh, we think that it's, a, that it's a mature enough technology and the opportunity costs are such that if we spend the money subsidizing nuclear power plants, then we are not going to have that money available for things which are less mature, such as coal with carbon capture and storage. The other issue that uh, we raise about uh, nuclear power is, is uh, one of, uh, of uh, nuclear proliferation risks. Now, this is not a problem specifically in the United States, 
But our view is that before the United States embarks on a, a nuclear power renaissance, it's important to get the sequence of actions correct. If, if we say nuclear is the way of the future and with technology advances and, and some cost savings, who knows, it might be possible. But if we say that, we have to expect that 50, 60, 70 other countries around the world are going to say we want that too. And as we've seen with North Korea and with Iran, uh, we have a problem when some regimes say we want that too. And the problem is that we can't distinguish between diversion of, of uh, enriched uranium uh, for weapons purposes and um, just the uncertainty in the inventory estimation techniques. Uh, you have to have inspectors in these facilities if you're going to be able to do that. So either we're going to have to have a, a global regime where inspectors can be in every facility uh, or we're going to have to have some internationalization of the uranium enrichment process. And right now we don't have either of those and we think we ought to, we ought to make sure that we do our homework and get the nuclear security issue uh, under an umbrella regime that works before we invite another 50, 60, 70 countries to become nuclear powers. Bill, let me uh, turn now and ask you a question or two, if I may. Um, you touched uh, in your comments on both the environmental and the economic challenges of a program that is not global in its coverage of emissions. Um, I'm wondering, from your point of view, if there is a policy package that the U.S. could move forward with that would involve some kind of mandatory uh, restrictions on greenhouse gases, even if we still needed time to bring forward a more global commitment to, uh, to targets and timetables. Uh, it wouldn't have to be cap and trade. It could be a tax on carbon energy. It could be uh, regulatory standards. But uh, I want to make sure I understand whether there's room for a U.S. program or whether it needs to move very tightly in sync with an international agreement. Well, first of all, our preference would be an international agreement because, because it's an international issue. And, and to think that you can, you can move in, in, in a piecemeal fashion seems, seems to be a, a path where we're going to end up wasting more time. And let me just give you one example. We have been talking about this issue now. I, I've been personally involved with this issue now for 13 years. Uh, in some way, shape, or form, cap and trade in its present form has been around uh, for a very long time. And during that 13 years, we lost an enormous number of opportunities to really begin reduce, reducing CO2. For example, during the same 13 years, uh, we've been fighting over Yucca Mountain, which would be the storage facility uh, for, the, for the nuclear waste. Nuclear has no carbon emissions. We need a baseload technology. We don't have a baseload technology if you're going to begin removing uh, coal from the environment. That's the first thing. We have decided as, as a country that we're going to allow uh, decades of, of litigation on, on NEPA-type issues so that we can't put alternative technologies um, uh, into the marketplace. Uh, for seven or eight years, we had the uh, energy-saving performance contracts where the private sector could bid on, on doing a, a complete energy redo on uh, federal facilities at no cost to the government. I'll repeat that, no cost. And then they're paid over the years uh, from, the, from the energy savings. It, it literally took until December of last year when we just hammered the Bush administration to, to get this thing moving so we could get the contracts moving. And there's an example of the, the, the federal government being the largest uh, user of, of energy in the, in the world, and we couldn't get these programs through. Um, 
we, we have been fighting for seven or eight years uh, in every energy bill to get the technology moving forward so that we have uh, the materials and the technology out there because I don't think anyone would disagree that if you're going to address climate change, you've got to get the technology. We could have had higher energy efficiency centers. There are so many things that we could have done that really made a dent. But what we decided to do is fight for a theoretical program that has domestic jurisdiction. And we've got to begin, if we're going to address climate change, we've got to begin – uh, thinking a little bit differently because had we been developing the technologies and, and marketing the newer technologies around the world, we would have had tremendous benefits. And then the last point is uh, technology and, 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 and carbon emissions. A ton of carbon going up in the air in China is just as important as a ton of carbon going up in the air in the United States. And if China is building one coal-fired power plant a week, which we are not, uh, we need to really begin trying to reduce those emissions. That's the easy, or you stop them from burning dung in the streets. So there were a lot of ways in which we could have gone forward, but our policymakers elected to just do one thing, fight on cap and trade, and therefore we haven't had the kind of uh, creative ideas we need. And then uh, a final point, just, uh, just bringing regulatory certainty to the renewable fuels, the alternative fuel sector of the economy, just regulatory certainty. I'm not talking about coal or oil or the fact that it takes 20 years to get a the permitting for, for a new refinery. But just go with alternative fuels. Give them a date certain when they can get through the process so we're not tied up. But what happens is we're tied up in Cape Wind for years, so we can't get the windmills off uh, Nantucket. Now a senator from California wants to take the Mojave Desert uh, out and so you can't put wind and solar there. You can't have these kind of cross currents and try to be consistent with a, with a very small domestic policy. Bill, one... Uh follow up on that, if I may. Um, you mentioned both initially and in these comments issues related to the difficulty of getting concrete low carbon or, or no carbon investments um, in place, uh, permitting regulatory uh, obstacles and the like. Is there anything else that you think needs to be done to um, put in place that alternative to the fossil energy that would be uh, squeezed down under a mandatory cap or other policy? Uh, do we need more expenditures on developing new technology, uh, other kinds of measures that would expand the set of choices we've got? And if so, what would you be suggesting as the steps needed for that? Sure. Well, I mean, we, we, meaning the U.S. Chamber, we, we supported the stimulus package. We thought that was a good step forward to put money in uh, to areas of the economy, pr primarily technology, that we thought was a, a, a huge step forward and, and, and we're thrilled that, uh, that they did it. Uh, but there are also other what I would call insidious factors. i give you an example. I, I, I can't use the names, but I had a, a company in um, – uh, the other day, and uh, they they were clean coal. They had financing. They had a utility where they were going to put it in, uh, but they couldn't get the uh, the Treasury Department to issue the bulletin uh, for the as to how you actually account for uh, the thirty percent tax credit that 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 they would get for for installing it. And so it's these kind of questions that come up more in the regulatory system when you look at our project no project site. All of the, these projects are privately funded. We don't need all of this government money. What you need, if you're going to seriously begin developing uh, alternative fuels and bringing, into, bringing them from the rural areas into the city, is you need regulatory certainty. You need to be able to make sure you can put the grid in place and that it's really going to get built, that it's not going to go through 20 years of, uh, of litigation. The second thing you need is you really need to be able to streamline the permitting on the technology because you can't consistently have uh, a, a time frame of five to ten years 
years or longer uh, doing litigation. I mean, it was the other day, uh, last week, an Ohio company that was going to put in a carbon capture system. Uh, they've, they've got through all their permitting and, and they got to the end stage with, with, uh, or, uh, with, with DOE and they got to the end stage and, and they were told that DOE as part of the risk calculation was now going to factor in all the lawsuits that were going to be brought against it as part of their final determination. Well, the CEO of the company said, well, I'm pulling the plug because that's years and years. And, and when, you, when you litigate something for so long and you destroy the financial base of, of, and, and the financial incentives, one, you're adding costs to the project, but two, you're making sure that if you take fossil fuels out of the economy, you're not going to have any energy to put back. And until there is a piece of legislation that gives uh, organizations like the Chamber assurances that we are going to have an energy supply to run this country, it's going to be really hard for us. And that's probably the biggest deficiency in all the cap-and-trade bills. And if they want to start you know, looking for the Chamber to support, we have to have a comfort level that we're not just taking energy out, that we're actually going to have some energy to put back. And that's really crucial. Peter. Um, The U.S. CAP proposal, as I understand it, calls for a gradual transition from allocated permits to an auctioned permit system. This is a topic that's certainly been capturing a little bit of attention in the press lately. Why do we need to start with uh, a substantial amount of permit allocation for free uh, and then move toward an auction as opposed to getting to the auction right off? Well, I'll take a stab at I'll take a stab at this. David could probably answer this in his in his sleep, but um, I think that uh, one of the main reasons is because that we've made a choice here to have uh, fairly aggressive um, timetable targets in the early years. Uh, you could probably do without um, uh, early free allocations if you had. Um, you know, um, if you didn't have such a robust set of targets in the in the in the early years, and uh, as a consequence of that, you have to uh, deal with this transition to a, a lower carbon economy in a very intense way. And uh, U.S. CAP made this well, I guess you would call it a grand compromise to say, in exchange for having uh, an aggressive. Uh, targets at the beginning so that you can begin to show progress, uh, that we would need to have uh, also a serious set of uh, transition um, measures, including um, uh, allocation of the allowance value um, to those parts of the economy that would be uh, most seriously affected by the uh, what would result, which is the high cost of energy. That would be consumers, that would be uh, large and small businesses, that would be other entities that uh, might not be able to pass on um, the, you know, the, the added cost. The other aspect would be other um, uh, cost containment measures, everything from uh, increased use of uh, the ability to have uh, measurable, verifiable uh, offsets. So there's a suite of measures that are really required when you have the, um, the reductions that uh, are being proposed and that we have agreed to in the, in the ranges for, uh, uh, for greenhouse gas reductions. And we felt that that is um, a simpler uh, way to, um, to, to manage the allocation of allowance value than to uh, auction and then try to figure out how to redistribute the revenues. Um, one follow-up on that, then. Um, you mentioned the, uh, I think your word was robustness of some of the earlier targets, and 
Um, there are some analyses that I've seen that suggest that with those kind of targets, there is a real prospect of um, a move toward natural gas in the electric power sector. And so coming back to your earlier and quite understandable concern about what that would do for the competitiveness of, of your your company and your sector. Um, what do you think can be done about that if uh, allowance allocation really isn't enough to, to do the job? Would you support the kind of safety valve proposals that have been in uh, or at least suggested as part of Senator Brigham's earlier uh, legislative ideas, or would you support other measures to slow down the uh, the achievement of these targets if things start to get uh, out of hand with these costs? Well, there are measures uh, in the um, in the blueprint. I will hold it up again. Uh, that uh, that really address that. Not so much the Bingaman approach, but the uh, the notion of borrowing, the notion of uh, you know again uh, uh, a, a robust set of uh, both international and domestic offsets. Um, I also think that the complementary measures uh, that David alluded to uh, in, earlier are, are extraordinarily important here. We have to really make sure that the, uh, for example, energy efficiency in buildings uh, gets deployed uh, as quickly and as firmly as possible. You know, we have um, building codes energy-efficient building codes throughout the country, and they are enforced, implemented and enforced at the local level. You really have to make sure that that gets done and done well because buildings account for something like 40% of the greenhouse gas emissions, uh, and you're not going to capture them with a cap. So uh, generally would subscribe to, those, to that suite of issues that I described and that is further elaborated on in the blueprint. But I, you know, I have to say that that uh, both energy efficiency and then uh, the whole the whole carbon capture, um, we have to make sure that there's adequate incentives to deploy um, carbon capture uh, uh, and sequestration technologies. I mean, for example, Dow has just uh, partnered up with another company, Alstom, on a uh, uh, a technology for capturing uh, CO2 um, that uh, we think is well on its way to commercialization, I think the challenge is going to be to make sure that you have the kinds of incentives in place that will allow it to be deployed. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.